0: Welcome
1: everybody to this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneberger, the co-host of this show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership, the producer of this show. And this is a podcast where we talk about Crucible experiences. The tagline for this podcast is living and leading with significance. And one way that we chart a course to get there is out of crucible experiences, those painful, difficult, trying, tragic times of our lives, failures, setbacks, whatever they may be, they're things that change the course of your life. We talk about those things, but we don't talk about them here to wallow or to kind of camp out there. We talk about them as a leaping off point to living a life of significance, learning the lessons of those crucibles so that we can live a life of significance. And as always, my host of this program is Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Warwick, welcome. This is going to be a very interesting discussion that we've not had before, so I'm looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely, and very excited to have David and Mike here with us, and yeah, should be a good discussion.
1: The David and Mike that Warwick uh, referred to are David and Mike Charbonnet, father and son. Mike is the father, David is the son, and They have, as you'll soon discover, the same crucible experience that they're going to talk about, but it's different perspective. One experience, two crucibles that they've had to go through. And uh, by way of introduction, before they tell us their stories, I want to read their bios and the connection between their bios will kind of let you know what we're going to be talking about. Here's Mike's biography. I spent the first three years in the Navy going to school to become a fire control technician and serving aboard a destroyer. I received orders to SEAL training, Navy SEAL training, when my seventh request for it was approved. After graduating with Class 98, not in 1998, but Class 98, I reported for duty to Underwater Demolition Team 11, where I completed multiple deployments. Following my first enlistment, I continued to serve in the SEAL Reserve Unit. During my reserve time, I married my wife Beth, we had children and I worked as a pastor at the church we attended. I was recalled during Desert Storm in 1991. I served at SEAL Team 5 and SDV Team 1. While at SDV Team 1, it was discovered that I had a brain tumor. My SPEC WAR qualifications were revoked, and I was given the option to either go to the fleet or be medically retired. After they stirred around in my noggin with a sharp stick... (laughs) I decided to accept a medical retirement in 1997. We moved to Texas and I started working as a consultant to oil and gas exploration companies. Now Mike's bio goes on a little bit longer than that, but before we let him talk more about that, let's do David's bio, David Charbonnet. David was born in San Diego into a military family. He joined the Navy in 2006 with the intent of becoming a SEAL. David graduated from SEAL training and SEAL qualification training with Class 278 on August 16, 2010. David was assigned to SEAL Team 1, where he served for a year and a half. In October of 2011, David was injured in a parachuting accident outside of San Diego. He sustained a burst fracture of the L1, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. David began rehab at VIP just months after his injury and continues to this day. When Dr. Marcus, founder of VIP, presented David with the opportunity to serve as VIP's president, he gladly accepted the opportunity to help others in the same way VIP had helped him. David currently leads VIP as president and serves on the board of directors. That is an incredible story, and Warwick, take it away and let's get some of the details from these gentlemen about what they've been through.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Gary. So David, I'd like just to start with you because it seems like, as Gary mentioned, there's maybe a key crucible experience, but it affected you both differently. obviously affected David directly, but then Mike also a huge amount. so. David, just share a bit with us your story and in particular your crucible experience as a sort of backdrop as we move forward.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, you know, obviously growing up, I knew a lot about the SEAL team. And when it was time to graduate high school and find something to do, that was kind of what I landed on. And, you know, it's it's a great challenge. And that ended up not being the big challenge of my life. So I remember telling people when I graduated that day, I just felt like this wasn't the special thing I was going to do. And I didn't really think about it too much, but year and a half later about when parachuting with some friends and came in, stalled my canopy at about 80 feet, trying to avoid an airplane on the ground and came down really hard. And fortunately only broke my back and it could have been a lot worse, but I hit the ground so hard that I knew that I probably was hurt. I was totally conscious the whole time. And for my first thought I was like, oh no, my platoon's gonna be mad at me because I'm gonna <laughs> miss my deployment. Mm-hmm. And so I was pulling the parachute off me as all tangled. I rolled through the dirt after I hit. And I wanted to see, I thought, you know, surely I broke a leg or something. I hit so hard. And when I pulled the parachute off my legs and I could see my legs, I could tell by how they were laying that they weren't laying how I felt like they were laying. And by the way they were laying, they looked lifeless. And I touched my knee and couldn't feel it. And I tried to move my foot and I couldn't move it. And I knew exactly what had happened. And I just remember laying back and looking up at the blue San Diego sky and saying, all right, God, let's do this. And that was the start of a crazy journey that I'm still on right now I tell people it's one of the weirdest you know experiences that that I've ever been through is just in an instant my entire dreams and goals and life that I had envisioned for myself disappeared and a new one it appeared that had nothing on it I didn't know what was on it and it was a pretty scary thing but also just weird and those next couple days you know having surgery and You know, my parents flew from Texas where they were living at the time and had a lot of friends and family coming to see me in the hospital. It was was pretty crazy, but I was, I don't know. I think God was protecting me. I don't know what was happening, but I was handling it pretty well. I feel like it wasn't until I went home that it really hit me that, oh, geez, this is, this is really like my life is going to be like this. And that was really hard. It was really hard losing my job, not because it was a fun job only, but I felt like I had a purpose in the world. I thought that it was an important job to be a SEAL, to help defend our country and, you know, go after people that were bad to not only the U.S., but all of society. And I felt like I was part of something special when I was doing it. And to lose that was extremely hard and it was took a while to find out the real reason why I'm around you know and i have fortunately had a lot of you know loving family and friends around me that were concerned and you know that was a whole hard part in itself though was seeing the amount of impact it had on my loved ones and how much it hurt them was hard for me as well and the amount that it actually changed the trajectory of what people were doing was very humbling and is still humbling. So today to see that the things that our people are doing because of being, you know, moved by my accident, is pretty crazy.
1: And this would yeah, be, so a, that, I think this would be a good time not to interrupt you, Mike, but you mentioned how difficult this was on your family. And I've been watching, you know, for the listeners, we're recording this in a video call so all of us can see each other. And as you were telling your story, And that was in 2011. So we're talking eight, nine years ago. I watched your dad, Mike, who's here with us, and I can see the look on his face. It still pains him to hear the details of that. Mike, how difficult was this for you when your boy had this accident? It was tough. I think
3: anybody who has children expects that their lives will, you know, they'll go farther, do more than what you've done. And David was certainly somebody that those expectations were natural for because he was good at basically everything he wanted to be good at. He was terrible at school because he hated it, but, you know, he's smart. And he could have been good at school if he had felt like it. And when I was in the teams – I was in the training department at three different teams. And so I trained a lot of young guys coming out of training and David was by far better than almost all the young kids I trained in. just in terms of natural interests, talents, drive.
2: You may be being, a little biased.
3: I, <laughs> I am. I'm very biased, but also, you know, Just objectively, you're better at things than a lot of other guys. Even his teammates and his classmates when he was going through training recognized that he's a leader. And so it was tough. But I think for anybody to see their kid get hurt, it would just tear them up.
0: So, yeah, I think anybody that's a parent, even though most of us have not gone through what you've gone through, can relate at least a little bit. David, I just want to go back to you. I mean, you had a dad that was in the military, you know, most of his life in the SEAL teams. So that's sort of a remarkable example that I'm sure you looked up to as you were growing up. And so was being a SEAL something that you really thought about as you were a kid growing up? You know, I'd like to be like kind of dad or at least do what dad did and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, whenever I was little and playing you know with friends and stuff and kids were like let's play army i was like let's play navy and they all looked at me like weird but uh i didn't i thought the navy just you know was all the same i didn't realize being a seal was special until i was much older and you know my dad kind of mentioned it that i was very bad at school and so my dad was constantly on my case about not doing catch finding out that i wasn't doing homework or whatever and so we battled a lot growing up and until, you know, towards the end of high school that we kind of put down our arms and came a lot more close because he wasn't have to be on my case about that. <laughs> but I was just telling somebody, actually, you know, when I first joined the Navy, it was literally because I had nothing else going on. It wasn't any really great patriotic thing. It was, so I was like, ah, I'm not going to college. I need to find a job. I guess I'll be a SEAL, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> it, and you know, that's mostly just me being an immature 19-year-old. But when I joined and I was in Great Lakes waiting to go to Bud's, Admiral McGuire, who was in charge of all Naval Special Warfare at the time, came out to see the facility out there and meet the instructors. But he also met the students, me being one of them, and he looked at all of us. He said, I need guys to do this job. And most of the people that are going to try are going to quit or can't do it. But I need people to do it. And for whatever reason, that really struck me. And that was from that point on, I felt a duty to serve in that capacity because I felt like it was important and that I felt like I was capable of doing it and doing it well. And from that point on, I felt a calling to do it and definitely felt a calling to do well at it because of my dad and you know being a legacy so there was that calling and uh i mean it was a fun job too it was one of the first things that i was really good at doing you know so- like i was bad at school and things like that so it was kind of i felt like it was my my calling those were meant to be my in my life you know
0: yeah i want to talk a little bit about the crucible experience a bit more but one thing i think you said earlier that Maybe I misheard, Herb, you said something like, I wasn't sure that this was my purpose. What did you mean by that? Because I want to make sure I understand that as you were being a SEAL. That
2: Yeah, so I guess probably most people feel this way, but I'll, they feel that they're destined for something special, to do something special. And I felt that way and I didn't really know what it was. And going through training, I was like, I guess, you know, being a SEAL will be that thing that something special is probably what it is and i remember graduating and you know it was a special day not everyone gets this but they had my dad you know was able to come up and actually pin me with my trident which is the warfare pin that you get when you become a seal and so he got to pin me which was pretty cool and it was a special day and meant a lot but i felt this feeling after you know i was done just standing there with my classmates that that was not it it was something else was like what i was like meant to do or not that i wasn't meant to do that but it wasn't the like final there might have been, made it. there might yeah. have been
0: a grander purpose or even a higher mission which yes, sounds exactly. weird to say to a seal but maybe that was a forerunner of i don't know some divine hand that you weren't quite aware of at the time
2: exactly yeah that's it
0: so yeah before we get go- Back to Mike, you said a couple of things earlier that, you know, in the moment when it happened, it sounded like it was one of those things where it wasn't like a faulty parachute. There was, I think you mentioned airplane on the ground and you were trying to avoid it. And it was just those awful words when people say bad luck, you know, it wasn't necessarily anybody's fault or, you know, it sounds like that. But you said in the moment it happened, I wouldn't say you were calm, but it sounded like it really set in when you got back home, that I guess SEALs are trained to, okay, you have a problem, great, let's solve it, let's figure out the next step. But it's almost like it was a delayed reaction in terms of the severity of the impact on your life. Is that true?
2: Yeah, uh, I think it's pretty common, you know, when people have big injuries, life-changing things like that happen, the time that they're in the hospital, you know, maybe it's still hard. But I think people always feel like the doctors are going to be able to fix you. And it's not till you go home and you leave the hospital that it really sets in like, Oh, things are different. Like things are going to be different. So when you get home is kind of when you
0: feel that. So when you're at home, obviously you have a strong faith that I'm sure helps, but you know, your mission in life, which I think you thought it was through the seals and you probably form close bonds with your other fellow teammates that that was going to be, forever different. I guess it's probably an obvious question, but what were you feeling when you were at home in those first few weeks, first few months after that, you know, the accident happened?
2: Well, in the beginning, it was kind of, I would say I started a downhill trend of, you know, depression. In the beginning, your hopes are high that you can, you know, there's always people that break their back and have a spinal cord injury and regain function. And so we had high hopes that I would start regaining function and that I would maybe even be able to go back to being a SEAL. So in the beginning, hopes are high, but every day that goes by that you're not regaining function quickly, you start to lose a little hope like, oh my, maybe this is permanent. And that's kind of what happened. And I was doing everything under the sun, trying to increase my chances. The SEAL team said, your job is to try to get better. So I had every day to go to the rehab clinic that I run now and was doing oxygen chambers, you know, uh, acupuncture, special diets, everything, and trying my hardest to regain function. And I was regaining a little bit, but it's just not enough to, and slowly was setting in that was probably going to be permanent. But the other really hard factor that was really challenging and really, I think, affected crucible- In my faith during that time, was the amount of pain I was having. I was having called neuropathic pain, and it's like phantom pains, pains in my legs that were so severe but weren't actually happening physically. But it felt like I was being electrocuted or stabbed or my bones were breaking. It was so severe. And, you know, I'm supposedly tough because I was in the SEAL teams, but it was pain that I couldn't even imagine. I, you know, cried out. I was praying a lot, you know, just in my bed all by myself in the middle of the night, you know, for relief, for just comfort or for somebody to console me. I was just like, God, just let me know you're like there watching me. You know, if if you're not going to stop the pain, take it away, but tried hard to believe it was for a purpose, but I started doubting that and that the doubt, but beyond being paralyzed, beyond the pain, doubt that I might not have anyone up there looking after me was the hardest thing and the most depressing thing that affected the most challenging part of my crucible, you know?
0: So, um, uh, Mike, as you're seeing this happen in your son, talk a bit about what you were feeling, because one of the things you said earlier is you've been in, in the seals, you know, it probably as well as anybody, You see this son of yours who you objectively think could be one of the best that there's been as a seal, suddenly as good as any. And it's like, wow, I have a son that can follow in my footsteps that can really be as good, maybe better than I was, you know, and you just have this incredible sense of pride. And then that dream is ended and you see the excruciating pain. I mean, talk about the gamut of emotions that you and your wife and your family were going through as you were seeing all this
3: it was very hard i remember cuz i used to stay overnight in the hospital when david was in the trauma unit he got moved out of icu and into this trauma room and initially i was just there to keep you know the whole every 30 minutes somebody coming in and taking your blood pressure and stuff and i he needed his rest so i would just kind of be the sheriff and keep people out of his room but Shortly after he moved to the trauma, he told me one night, he said, Dad, I feel something in my legs. We were so pumped. It was like, This is awesome. You know, we've been praying for this, and you're starting to get feeling back in your legs. But over the next couple of hours, it just became the pain that he just described. And I'd never seen anybody in that kind of pain. It was tough. I was, (laughs) I didn't know how to react. And I remember a question that David asked me that night, you know, as it turned on, I mean, it, you know, it just lasted all night. And he said, what if I never get any muscle control or movement back and all I get back is this pain? And I didn't have an answer. Just, you know, I've been a believer at that point for 30 plus years and probably honest to say, I've never really had a whole lot of doubt and I still didn't, but I've never felt more helpless. And then when the time finally came for David to be discharged and to come home and we became, you know, his roommates, Beth and I had moved to San Diego and David moved in with us, and to see the effect that David's pains had on Beth was devastating. I mean, nothing's ever affected her like that. So it was hard, but it showed me something that I'd always known about David, but in a, in a much more profound way. You know, I saw his courage, his strength even though he doubted it, he was doing it. He was handling it. He even said, you know, a couple of times, I wish I wasn't alive. You know, we th- thought about, you know, we have weapons at our house. Maybe she'd get rid of them. Maybe He had enough pills on his nightstand to kill all of us. So, you know, that wasn't going to do any good. But David just withstood it. I'm proud of everything he's done. But... One of the things I'm most proud of is his response to all of this. He was strong.
0: You know, what I'm hearing you say almost that some of the qualities you saw in David is, I think you pretty much said as good as you've seen, in terms of the characteristics to be a seal, some of the physical part was taken away. But the courage, the mantle, the spiritual part, that wasn't taken away, the accident couldn't take that away. Is that kind of what you felt as you saw David handling what to anybody would be an excruciating experience?
3: Yes. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. You know, he, he didn't ask for much, you know, I mean, he wanted the pain to stop. I can't remember exactly who, but a couple of times in this conversation already, somebody has said pain with a purpose and David wrote a little article for I can't even remember what, but it was pain with a purpose. Do you remember that, David? Yeah. I yeah, don't remember especially. it was for I think it was Johnny Erickson Tata had a newsletter or something, and I can't remember how we got connected to all that, but David wrote a little article for that and it was profound, you know, and it was beyond the initial stages of that. It was when David was Coming out of the deep depression that he got into. And, you know, it took a while to get to that point.
0: Anyway. So, uh, David, talk a bit about how you got to the other side of what, you know, the realization it's a life altering injury. Talk about how you began to see his pain with a purpose. And just for those who may not know, Johnny Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic. She it came that way through a diving accident in Maryland, I don't know, many decades ago. probably, I don't know, 60s, 70s. But talk about how you began to see a purpose and really a way back, at least maybe not physically, but maybe mentally, spiritually. Talk a bit about that, David.
1: If I may, can Please. I just uh, jump in for a second, because I know now we're going to move on to what happened after this incredible crucibles. But I've been taking notes as both of you, Mike and David, have been talking about this experience. And one of the things I want to highlight for listeners is that the details of this story is something that very few listeners are probably going to ever go through. But I want to focus on some of the emotional reactions and the emotional situations that you both found yourself in. Because those emotional reactions will be the same as what people will feel. So your crucible may not be a parachuting accident that leaves you paralyzed. And it may not be that that happens to your child. But whatever that is, if it's a business failure, an addiction, um, some other kind of tragedy or trauma, listen, listener, to these things that David and Mike have said so that you can dial into what they're going to talk about as they talk about coming back from these crucibles will apply to you too. David said that after the accident, he felt like his goals for his life had disappeared. That's a universal experience for people who've gone through a crucible moment. David said, it took a while for him to find the real reason I was around. That's something that you can feel after business failure that feels catastrophic. David said that it was pain that I couldn't, have ever imagined. Now this was physical pain, but there's emotional pain that people who are listening to this feel through their crucibles. And Mike just said this, that he'd never seen anyone in that kind of pain. And any parent who has seen their child go through a crucible experience of any kind that has truly altered their life can identify with what Mike said. So David, yes, now all that emotion being true, how did you begin to find your way back?
3: Can I jump in real quick, Carrie? Sure. We were at some gathering or something, and one of my friends who was in SEAL team was over, and he was telling a story. David was sitting close by, and he was talking about how he got hurt doing something. And he says, so it was the worst pain ever. And he looked over, and he saw David, and he said, uh, oh, sorry, David. And David said, Something. I mean, this has been common wisdom from David. He said, That's okay, Ken. Everybody's pain is the worst pain ever. And just to go with what you were just sharing is like, you know, yeah, so maybe you don't have a broken back or maybe your child doesn't, but your pain is the worst pain ever. You know, it's what God has decided you can handle and you need right now. So just to highlight, the truth of what you just right. shared
0: that's very good yeah that's well said very well said so yeah, yeah.
2: i def- i still tell people that you know because people always feel like oh they can't talk about what they're going through to me because you know they're like oh you had it way worse <laughs> but everybody's got the struggle they're going through and it's devastating to them you know even if it's comparatively different but uh, several things happened that kind of helped me get out of the depths that I was in. You know, we've talked a lot about my physical pain that I was having and that was definitely a struggle, but the worst part of everything was the doubts and ultimately the depression that I was feeling was the scariest. And I really did not know where my mind was going to go or what I was going to do because I was getting into such a dark place and I would say about a year after my injury was when I was hitting my lowest point. And so a couple things happened. One night I was just struggling, you know, in my bedroom, my mind just spiraling out of control. And I had broken up with the girl I was dating and she was also my closest friend. And I, for whatever reason I called her and it was just like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. Like, this is too hard. I feel like God doesn't listen to me. I don't feel like he's there. I don't know if I even believe in God anymore. And this girl is my now wife. And she was like, well, come outside. She just jumped in her car in the middle of the night and drove to where we're living. I came out to the sidewalk and she was like, you know, just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean that he's not there and that he just doesn't care and love you and that he's not looking out for you. You know, I try to read my Bible and pray and I just don't feel him. I don't, see his impact or his influence on me at all and she just told me at the time she was memorizing the entire book of James and she's like Mm. just go inside and start reading James just start reading and so I went inside I was like all right God I don't know if anyone's there but I'm gonna start you know just trying to dive into you and trust you and start reading James and if you know people have read James the in that first chapter it talks a lot about going through trials and you know that it's ultimately make you perfect and there's a purpose behind it and so you know it's just kind of a god thing that happened to be the book she was memorizing at the time that i happened to call her and that was one real catalyst of you know change the trajectory of my depression and ultimately the rest of my life and the struggle i was going through my pain stayed the same you know i still had to deal with that a lot but I was also dealing with, you know, I talked about, I didn't have a purpose anymore. I didn't have my job that was important and I felt a lot of value. Uh, I felt like valueless. And so around that time also, I was going, you know, to rehab every day, this clinic VIP know, rehab center. And around that time, the doctor who was running it and founded it, Dr. Marcus pulled me into his office and he said, we're going out of business and I I need to leave because I can't afford to give myself a paycheck. I need to support my family. I'm going to have to leave and I want you to try to run the clinic. And I was like, Brad, I don't know anything about running a PT clinic and I definitely don't know anything about running a business or a nonprofit. And he's like, well, you know, it's going out of business. Just give it your best shot. And so I, I talked to at that time, I was now married to Janet, and to talked to her, and we felt that it was got to put that opportunity in front of me that I could help other people going through similar things that I was going through, and so we did it. And that I think was huge because I, you know, after the admiral had talked to me, and I felt a huge calling to service, and I felt like the SEAL teams was my calling of service, to serve my country, and my teammates and when i lost that it was one of the largest and most impactful parts that was really a struggle during my whole you know accident and aftermath of that so to have this purpose and a calling and to service people going through similar thing ultimately was a blessing to me and to my wife and to be able to help my physical therapy team help other people and help raise money for their therapy and just be there for them you know one of my favorite things to do in my job is when I see somebody come in and I can see in their eyes I can see when people are really feeling in so much pain I can see it I can see it. even if they're holding it in I can see it through their eyes and it's just crazy and to be able to like relate to them sometimes it's really what I like to do to be there for somebody that's going through those times on a one-on-one level um yeah, yeah, and it, it, on top
0: Go ahead. ahead. I was going to say that there's a couple of things that you said, which is interesting is at one of your lowest points, you know, you call your future wife, she has to reading the book of James, and you found something in there that was just some a bit of a solace. So it seemed like that was just a key moment where I don't know, maybe in some sense, God broke in through your future wife. And, you know, maybe the physical pain, I don't know if it's really got much less, but as you started working in VIP, did you sense that maybe the physical pain is there, but the sense of what is my purpose in life without seals? How can there be a mission as important as that? Surely there can't be, right? Did that provide some degree of maybe not physical healing, but maybe emotional and spiritual healing to feel like, okay, I can use my pain to help others. I can relate to where they are. Did that at least ease that side of the pain a little bit?
2: definitely i mean we talked about a pain with a purpose and you know i felt like there was a purpose but it was so bad that it wasn't enough to like justify it in my mind after you know right enduring it for so long and so yeah being able to be there for other people that are going through pain like that was definitely it helped me deal with it right I, and You know, beyond the pain, I see a lot of people that are going through the hardest thing in their life, and so they're a lot of the time dealing with depression. And even, you know, friends that I've known that are going through depression for other reasons, totally not a major life-changing accident or anything, but sometimes, you know, people can be struggling with depression for a multitude of reasons, and sometimes it's even harder for them when they feel like they don't have a big outside reason that people look at them for and say a way to justify it and so I'm always telling them you know like just because you're feeling this I know what it feels to be in that dark place and it's scary and that was worse than any pain I felt and so I try to encourage them that you know you're not alone and you know need to rely on other people you know one lie that your brain tells you when you're going through depression like that is you know wall yourself off from the world and kind of you just don't want to be around anybody and that's only going to make it worse. I remember my dad was like, Hey, you should go to get lunch with this guy. And I was like, when I was really depressed, I'd finally told my parents, I was like, I'm really depressed. And so one day he told me to go get lunch with this guy. I was like, I don't want to go to lunch with anybody. He's like, that's why you need to go. And so I did. And I remember going that day and I felt a lot better. And so I was like, okay, I need to force myself to, you know, get out of this rut. And
0: uh, I mean, that's well said. I want to bring, Mike back in here again so obviously David's pain is physical emotional spiritual and you know I think as we've said before it's hard to relate it to this case but sometimes it is said that wife's spouse kids their pain can almost feel worse than the person who's going through the pain it, it's hard to see that it actually lines up here but all that being said your pain was very real Mike and your wife Beth but As you begin to see signs of hope, you have your own pain and struggles through this. How did you kind of get back to the other side for you of seeing, you know, what this happened to your, you know, athletic son? And how did you kind of bounce back? I don't think that
3: I went into any kind of depression. I mean, I was depressed and sad, you know, but not the kind of depression that some people feel. I didn't feel hopeless and I didn't respond to my sadness by you know stopping everything and isolating myself I just felt this intense sadness and also concern for my son because you know I could see him going deeper and deeper into you know hopelessness part of the reason I think I didn't experience the depth of depression is that I had a longer track record that I could look back on in seeing the hard things that I have experienced, you know, death of uh, friends in the Navy and, uh, you know, friends going through hard things and, and being close to really bad stuff a few times, losing jobs that I loved and, you know, little things in comparison to David's accident, but I'd seen God use each of those things in ways that I never could have anticipated when they were happening. So even though it was tough for me to see David suffering the way he was, physically and emotionally, I had this long track record of seeing God's faithfulness that buoyed me. And I mean, I'm still... Sad. A lot of the time, you know, when I think about the future we had imagined and I need to tell myself, you know, God's smarter than me, better than me, cares more than me, loves David more than me. And his future, his planned future for David is better in every way than anything I could have come up with. So I had a deeper database of truth experiential truth, seeing God work than David did. David was a lot younger and a lot newer in his faith. So that's probably what prevented me from spiraling down as far as I might have.
0: What you're both talking about, and I can relate in a very small way, is the power of faith and belief that God has a plan. I mean, my experience is just trifling in comparison, but as listeners know, just losing a 150 year old family media business that was founded by a very strong believer. And when I came to faith, it felt like my mission in life was very clear to preserve and help grow the family business. And when it ended on my watch, yeah, I felt like my mission in life was over and I'd blown it. And so it's a very uh, small in comparison, but yet you just have to believe that I thought God's plan was pretty clear to me, but clearly, I, you know, if you meant it to happen, it would have happened. Didn't happen. And somehow he maybe has a, I don't know about a bigger purpose, but a different purpose. So yeah, I think a faith and belief in something that some eternal perspective, I think it doesn't solve the physical pain, but it does help us get through it. James is a great book for that. So yeah, so obviously for David, it was VIP, which we talked a bit about, and you got involved with something called Beyond the Teams, which I guess is SEAL Teams. So talk about how you got involved in that and, you know, which is sort of one of your current missions, so to speak.
3: I watched David and Janet lead the clinic. Dr. Marcus Brad was an incredibly compassionate guy, always spending money to get the right kind of equipment and stuff for his patients and stuff. All, <laughs> Even to the point of, you know, basically giving scholarships to patients and, pouring all of his own money into the clinic to the point where he needed to go get a job. And so, you know, the short way of saying that, he was a great doctor <laughs> and not a great businessman.
2: Very generous. And
3: so he, he <laughs> put David and Janet in a position where the clinic was doing good work, but was in trouble financially. And Janet is administratively strong and a tough girl. I mean, she outlasted David big time. You know, shes I'd put her up against any team guy ever. And she's just a really determined and talented girl. And so she started doing a lot of the back office kind of stuff. And David is a natural leader, got the staff and everybody, you know, motivated and kind of there's a real family feel to it. And they started having annual fundraisers to raise money for the clinic and to provide patient scholarships and things. And I just wanted to help. I don't know how to do therapy. I don't know how to do anything that Janet did, you know, the administrative stuff. So I didn't know a way to help. And in 2018, I'd gone on a bike and started getting in shape. And I said, I'm going to ride a bike ride and try to raise money for the clinic. And my first idea was I'll ride from San Diego to Florida and David, was like, yeah, dude, you're I an was idiot. like you know, I
2: didn't want him to like, die trying to do something.
3: <laughs> but he's also, like I said, he's as smart as can be. So he said, dad, we'll put you and your bike on a trainer in a box truck and we'll drive you to Florida. And we can say you pedaled the whole way. So, Anyway, so I wound up riding from San Francisco down to the clinic. I wasn't going to ride to the border, but a couple days out, I was somewhere up near L.A. or Santa Barbara or something, and he called me and said, Dad, we want you to finish at the clinic. And I thought, well, that's going to cut 30 miles off of this ride. <laughs> and I checked with my rear end and my legs, and, went, yeah, that's a good idea. So we finished that ride and we did make a little bit of money for the clinic. In November of 2018, my training class graduated in 1978. So guys started emailing around the beginning of 18, said, let's do a 40-year reunion at the UDT Seal Museum in Florida. So I went and about 12 or 13 other guys made it. And we're all telling stories, catching up with each other. And so I told them about the bike ride. And a bunch of them said that they wanted to do something like that with me. So there was eight of us at first. Three guys wound up having reasons that they couldn't keep going. But we said, we'll do a bike ride in 2019 to help the clinic. And then, you know, we're Mm -hmm. doing Zoom calls like this one, and we're doing, you know, telephones, emails, you know, as the concept crystallized, it was like, well, let's just make our own nonprofit that just raises money for other nonprofits. And so we used to be in the team. So we're beyond the teams. So this late October, early November, we rode our bicycles, five of us from Virginia Beach back to the museum. And raise some money for the clinic. And we're going to do another mission or a couple of missions in 2020.
1: um, There's a very interesting thing, Mike, that you said around the time of announcing this bike ride, this, this thousand mile bike ride down the East coast of the US. You said, America has given us much and it's our duty to give something back. That also sounds, David, like your frame of mind in leading VIP. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say more so I just feel like if I'm not helping the people that are going through similar things, what was the point of me going through it? You know, so I feel like, you know, everybody's given so much, you know, VIP, the clinic, they gave me, you know, so much hope and they were there for me going through one of the toughest times. I mean, also the SEAL teams, they took care of me so much, you know, but between you know making sure I got the right care after I got injured and checking up on me. And still to this day, the SEAL teams, you know, help me and support me if I need it. And there's just so many people just poured out to help me and I feel like I need to give back and, you know, pay it forward. And so that's kind of, you know, how I feel. And then I think, That's probably, you know, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but the guys beyond the teams, I think that's how they all feel too, that, you know, I think it's bred into their DNA to a life of service. And I think those guys, not every SEAL maybe, but those guys definitely, and they just wanted to serve any way they could. And so they all were like, let's do this. They were willing to give up, you know, hours and hours and miles and miles of training time their final ride was a thousand miles, but that's nothing compared to the countless miles they did training the year prior. And on top of doing all the logistics themselves and going out and trying to get funds for the clinic and ultimately this very important piece of machinery that we're raising money for still. And, you know, I think it's just all about serving your fellow man and paying it forward that way. And I don't know if that's how my dad feels or but uh that's certainly how I felt. And it's blessed my family to be able to do that.
0: I know as we're in the process of wrapping up, a couple of themes to me is that both you, David and Mike, have this, where you spent your whole life serving others, serving a higher purpose, serving your country, and that desire to serve others, that hasn't ended. It's been changed A different path, but you still have that passion to desire to serve others. And yes, maybe use your pain for a purpose. But another thing I think you've said, maybe a lesson, is that when you go through pain, you can easily think, Well, I just want to be alone. Nobody can understand, or you know, I just who would want to be around me? You know, let me just, you know, almost like in the Bible, you know, sort of a leper, unclean, you know, let me just separate myself so that people don't have to see what I'm going through. But which is really a message from the dark side, if you will, or from the evil one, is that just to let people in who want to care and be with you and cry with you and just be with you. It's a hard thing to do, but I'm sure you've encouraged others to say, I know how you feel. You you've got to let your spouse, loved ones in and friends. And you've obviously done that. You know, your dad has obviously been with you. You've let him in, you know? So... Yeah, I think there are some important lessons that all of us can learn, whether we've gone through what you've gone through or not. That you helps to have some anchor in some eternal perspective. It helps to feel like you can use your pain to help others, and it helps to just let people in. You just want to help in a big or small ways. Does that kind of make sense, to both of you? As we
2: absolutely, absolutely.
3: I think if I could, there's a short way of recapping or of describing this entire process. You know, the different small hardships that I've faced, and then seeing the effect magnified in David's much bigger, much tougher hardship. I think the obvious first response is make it stop, make it go away. And that comes from a viewpoint. It comes from an attitude that this hardship is a problem to be solved. And I think that that's inaccurate. I think that the right way to view any kind of, well, to use your podcast, you know, any kind of crucible, when you're faced with that, the right attitude is this is something to be leveraged for good. That all of the hard things I've experienced, God has used them in my life. And when I was keeping my head on a swivel and looking around God was solving the problem, but not in a way I would have expected, but he was opening opportunities for me to leverage that hard thing for good. And that's what David has done by taking over this clinic. But he's helped so many people who are patients at the clinic. I mean, David is a leader still. He has a band of friends and acquaintances that he's still impacting. And he and Janet as a team are changing the lives of many people for the good. Now they have a family started and everybody I know, you know, wants to be around them and stuff because of the influence that they have. And so they have leveraged this tragedy as an opportunity. And that's really the way, if you can get there mentally, emotionally, that's the way to face a hardship is to look for how you can leverage it for good because you can't.
1: You should. And speaking of good, both of you used one word that I want our listeners to pay attention to, and I want you to talk about it, and that word is nonprofit. So you both, VIP and beyond the teams, rely on donations and the largess of people who are moved by your mission, who want to help people the way that you're helping them. So, David, for folks who would like to help VIP Neural Rehab. where can they find information and how can they do that?
2: Well, you can go to vipneurorehab.org and you can look at what we do there. It's just like our staff, uh, some of the equipment that we utilize, and you can also donate online. And right now we are actually raising money for a piece of machinery called the Lokomat. And it's really a cool tool, but it's also extremely important that's a robotic walking system. So there's robotic legs over a treadmill. And it will allow somebody who's paralyzed to actually walk, again, on a treadmill, which not only is just really cool and impactful to somebody who's in a wheelchair that can't walk anymore and emotionally <laughs> pretty impactful for them, but it's important that it keeps the blood flowing and is helpful for the neural rehab to hopefully regain function and be able to do that, that gait on your own again. And so, it's a really important piece of machinery for uh, neuro rehab, which is important for people not only spinal cord injury, but stroke and ALS, all sorts of difficult things that people are going through. And it's expensive, though. So, we've been raising money, and Beyond the Teams has raised a bunch of money through their bike ride, and still have been going out and trying to talk about their mission and what they did and their sacrifice. And so, If you feel called to help out this cause, please go to vipneurorehab.org and donate online. We're still trying to meet our goal to be able to afford that piece of machinery.
1: Excellent. Um, And Mike, folks who would want to support what Beyond the Teams is doing, you mentioned the bike ride may be over down the east coast of the U.S., but you're also looking at some other missions for 2020. How can people learn more about Beyond the Teams and help out?
3: We have a website, beyondtheteams.org. And we have a Facebook page and an Instagram thing, which, you know, (laughs) we're all old. And so social media is not our native language, but we're trying. My wife does a great job of putting stuff on there. It's slowed down a whole lot since the end of the bike ride. But as a team, we've decided that any donations that come in, at least until the end of this year, will go to the clinic. So we got a big check. I was out helping build a bunch of bicycles for underprivileged kids with a team of guys the other day and somebody walked up and gave me a check. So pretty awesome that some stuff is still trickling in. But since you're such a smarty <laughs> pants, Gary, this is what we want. We want a large S.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> is that what you said? You a large S. That's very good. So um, <laughs>
3: So if some of you really well-off people need to make donations because the tax man's coming, think of VIP neuro rehab or beyond the teams. We will make sure that your donation changes somebody's Um, life.
1: I'm going to let you have the last word here before I close us, because I don't know that we said this word here. That's very critical to what we do at crucible leadership, but I'm not sure if we talked about a life of significance, but clearly without saying the word, what Mike and David have reached after their crucibles is a life of significance. Isn't that accurate?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right, Gary. Crucible leadership, we talk about going through crucible moments, could be physical, financial, losing a business, getting fired, uh, abu- physical abuse, divorce. And we talk about trying to use that pain for a purpose. And really, from my perspective and Crucible Leadership's perspective, life is about leading a life of significance, a life that's on purpose, that's really serving other people. Shared in an earlier podcast, nothing wrong with success, but success in of itself is not particularly satisfying, whether it's financial or success in any particular endeavor. When you feel like you're using your life to help others, to make the world a better place, maybe to fulfill a grander plan, that to me is a legacy that you can be proud of, your family can be proud of, and clearly both David and Mike are leading lives of significance. Their whole being is about serving others, about helping others. And that is, you, know, you can't really think of a better example of leading lives of significance, which again, from my perspective, is what life's all about. So yes, it's a both are terrific examples of that.
1: Excellent. Well, that is a phenomenal place for us to land the plane, as I like to say, Thank you, listener, for spending time hearing the stories of David and Mike Charbonnet. If you want to learn more about Crucible Leadership, you can find us at our website, crucibleleadership.com. We also, even though we're kind of old too, Mike, (laughs) we also are on social media, and you can find us on Facebook at Crucible Leadership. If you want to connect with Warwick and Crucible Leadership on LinkedIn, You can do that at Warwick Fairfax. He is Australian, so there's a silent W in his name. It's Warwick. It's spelled W-A-R-W-I-C-K, but pronounced Warwick, at Warwick Fairfax. You can find us on LinkedIn. And until the next time that we're together, thank you for joining us, and thank you for spending time listening to these inspiring stories. And remember, your own crucible experience, your own crucible moment, is not the end of your story it was not the end of Mike's story and not the end of David's story it was the beginning it was the start of a new chapter that makes the story even greater because it leads to what these two gentlemen are living what Warwick is living and that is a life of significance